Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Come on back and have a seat. Come on back and have a seat. Uh, you probably noticed in the bulletin, uh, well, you, if you were here last few weeks, you know it's been getting fuller and fuller, so we set the sanctuary at max capacity, so there's a lot of chairs in here. Um, but if you notice the parking lot's full on the mornings, feel free to park in the lower lot and walk up the steps. Um, we'd appreciate that. So, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dan. I'm uh, the pastor here, one of the pastors here at Jacobswell Church. And I've shared this story with, with you all before, but when I was done with college at the University of Missouri, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And so I went into youth ministry and I did youth ministry for two years and it was uh, a fruitful endeavor and I enjoyed it, but I believed God was calling me elsewhere. And so Trish and I moved up to Western Wisconsin and I decided to start uh, doing advertising sales. And what I found out very quickly as I did advertising sales is that one, um, I was bad at it, and two, I hated it. And so when you're bad at something and you hate something, you know that's probably not the place you're supposed to be. And it was even through that that God confirmed my calling towards long-term vocational ministry, but also to Wisconsin. Well, as I was quitting my sales job, a youth ministry job popped up, and I was perfect for it, so I thought. And so I applied for the position and the interview went very well. I had a very good resume to bring before them. I knew the other candidate, the other candidate really had no resume at all. And from my knowledge of him, did not really meet the qualifications even to be in ministry because of the lifestyle he was living. And so I thought to myself, this is a shoe in This is why God has brought me to Western Wisconsin from Missouri was for this job. Well, a few days went by and the, the committee chair calls me and I hear his voice and I'm almost sitting there going, I'll take it, right? Like that's where I'm at. And, uh, and he says, we chose the other guy. And I remember sitting there on the phone just in disbelief uh, and in my arrogance and in my pain, uh, I said to him, you made a mistake. You made a mistake. And the reality is I thought that God had made a mistake. What was God doing? I thought God was paving the way for this thing to happen and now it's not happening. What happened, God? I'm curious if you can relate. I'm curious if you've ever felt that. Well, you probably never say it verbally because you know it's theologically bad to say, but I wonder if in your heart you have wondered, has God made a mistake? I think God is calling me this direction to do this thing in this place at this time, but, but it's not happening. There's a roadblock or there's a dead end or something's going on. You know, maybe you're here and you're married and you believe God has called you to have children, but you wrestle with infertility. Maybe you have aging parents and you know you're called to care for them, but it's become more and more difficult to do so. Maybe you are a parent and you're called to homeschool or public school or Christian school your children, and yet it has become much more difficult than you anticipated, and you often feel defeated. 
Maybe there's a certain sin or addiction in your life that you know, hey, I am called to put this to death, and yet temptation seems all around you. What do you do when you think, okay, God has taken me this direction to do this thing, and yet there are major roadblocks, there are major obstacles, and you're sitting there wondering, did God fall asleep at the switch? Is God in control? Maybe, maybe God made a mistake. Well, that is the situation that we will find David in today. If you would please open up to 2 Samuel chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a red Bible in the seat in front of you, and it is page 255 in the red Bible. You absolutely need a Bible, so make sure you grab it. If there aren't ones there, there are some in the back. You can grab that, bring it back to your seat, page 255, and you can keep it up during the entirety of the sermon because we'll go back to it time and time again. Uh, 1 Samuel, if you remember, uh, Israel anoints their first king of Israel. His name is Saul, and he is a king like the nations, and that he is rebellious against the Lord and unrepentant to the Lord. And so during his kingship, God anoints another king, a future king, King David. He's around 15 years of age at this time. Well, 15 years have gone by, and King Saul has died. And so now it's go time for David. It's time for him to assume his kingship in Israel. And so he has this plan. He knows this is what God is calling him to do. And yet it isn't quite as easy as he had thought it might be. Because even as he ascends to take kingship over all of Israel, arises, there arises another king and another kingdom to fight against his plan and the plan of God. And so that's what we're going to look at today as we see uh, this counterfeit kingdom that will seek to thwart the plan of God for David's kingship in Israel. So let's look together. Uh, it's a long passage. We got a lot to get through today. We're just going to read verses one through the first part of four just to start. It says, after this, that's after David grieved the loss of Saul and David, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahionim of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Let's pray. Lord, uh, God, as we dig into your word today, as we continue through 2 Samuel, God, pray, Lord, that you, would, that you would show to us that you are sovereignly in charge of all things, even the things that we don't understand, and that you are working all things out according to your grace and your good purposes in our life. Help us. Help us to believe that, even in the midst of our current situations. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we're going to read about a conflict between two kingdoms within a single bigger kingdom. And what we will discover is that in many ways, this conflict between these two kingdoms and the bigger kingdom is a conflict that we still experience on a daily basis today. Okay? And so here's, what we're going to, here's kind of where we're going to go. First, we're going to look at the kings of these two kingdoms. And then we're going to look at the battle of these two kingdoms. And then finally, we're going to look at the trajectory of these two kingdoms. So the kings, the battle, and the trajectory of these two kingdoms. First, the kings of these two kingdoms. Look back at verse 1 with me, if you would. 
It says, after this, again, after David leads the, the country in lamenting and grieving over Saul and Jonathan's death, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go? And he said, to Hebron. So if you look up here at this map, you guys probably know I'm a map guy by now. If we could go to the next slide. There we go. Angie actually split them for us because we need the map a lot today. Uh, and so if you remember, David and his crew uh, were located around here uh, in Ziklag. And, uh, and they were camped out there. Uh, they got, the, their city got burned to the ground. They're actually in the middle of rebuilding. Three days later, they come with news that King Saul is dead. And so David is here at Ziklag in Philistine territory, hiding out from Saul. And, and he gets word. And he goes to the Lord and he asks him, what should I do? And the Lord says, you should go to Hebron. Okay? Now, Hebron is important for a couple reasons. Uh, one is that Hebron is the largest city in Judah. Okay? And, and Judah is the southern, the southern part of the kingdom of Israel. Okay? So this is the gray part right here. Now, this is where it gets a little bit confusing, even as you read the Bible. Okay? Is that the northern kingdom is called Israel, and the whole kingdom is called Israel. Okay? So it gets a little bit confusing at times. But the northern kingdom is Israel, and the southern kingdom is Judah. And God calls David to come to Hebron, which is the capital city there, the largest city there. It's also the city that Abraham bought, that property, uh, where he buried his wife Sarah. But also Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were buried there as well. And so Hebron is a very important city for Israel, and David goes there. Now, before we move on to verses 2 and 3, I want to just highlight or at least show, look at the fact that David uh, is dependent on the Lord uh, for the steps that he will take. You know, David already knows that once Saul dies, he is to become the king of Israel. He was anointed towards that purpose about 15 years before this. But notice, David does not make a move to Judah without first consulting the Lord. This is far different than how Saul operated as the first king of Israel. But what King David did is that he went straight to the Lord to say, Lord, where should I go? I know you have called me to be king of Israel, but, but what are my next steps? You see, David did not only want to do God's will. David wanted to do God's will, God's way. He wanted to do God's will, God's way way. I have to confess this is often a struggle for me. I am very focused on productivity and moving forward and getting things done. And so oftentimes I forget to go to the Lord and pray. Uh, you know, I know that God has called me to preach the word on Sunday mornings, to share the gospel with friends and neighbors throughout the week. I know the Lord has called me to, to help lead this church in reaching our city. The Lord has called me to shepherd the flock uh, among me here at Jacobswell Church, the Lord has called me to love my wife as Christ has loved the church. The Lord has called me to love my children as God the Heavenly Father has loved me. I know all of this is God's calling in my life, but to be honest with you, there are many times I simply do this out of my own energy, my own power, my own wisdom, my own thoughts, and I don't go to the Lord in prayer. David shows us that we should not only pray to learn God's will for our life, but also to learn how we can fulfill God's will, God's way. If I can brag on our staff a little bit here. 
Uh, Jonathan and Linda are, are Hispanic, is our, Jonathan is our director of Hispanic ministry, hopefully plant a Hispanic church in the fall of next year. They usually come to second service. But when they came up from Chicago, Jonathan had been through seminary. He knew he was called to Hispanic ministry and to plant a Hispanic church. He came up here to Green Bay and we showed him around. We introduced him to some people. And at the end of that trip, they're like, this is great. This is what, like, everything's been very good. We've loved what we've seen here. And so we offered him the position of the director of Hispanic ministries. And as I was making him the offer, uh, he and Linda said, you know what, can we have some time to pray about it? And I'm sitting there thinking, what is there to pray about? Like, this is a great opportunity. It's a great fit. Why are you going to go pray? About? Like, this is great. Let's just do this. Um, but I said, okay, uh, you can go pray about it. And part of me is thinking, is this a nice way of them breaking up with us? Like, is that what they're doing here? But sure enough, they took a week to pray about it, to consult uh, their leadership. And they got back to us and said, we believe the Lord is calling us to be here. They didn't only want to do God's will. They want to do God's will, God's way. Uh, Pastor Spencer, and I didn't ask them permission to do this. I usually ask permission, but I know they'd say no because they don't like me bragging on them. But Pastor Spencer, in his schedule, has three hours each week blocked out where he just walks around this sanctuary, walks around outside, and he prays for you. He prays for the people he is counseling. You see, he knows that God has called him to be a pastor and a counselor, but he wants to do God's will, God's way, with God's power, because he knows that the effective means to transforming people's lives is not great counseling. It is the Lord who transforms lives. And so you may know what God has called you to do, to be a student, to be a mom, a dad, whatever it might be, to, to, to serve in, 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 your, in your workplace, wherever you are. But we need to continue to reach out to God and to pray to him and say, Lord, I know you've called me to do this, but how do you want me to do it? And that's what David is modeling for us here. Not only to do God's will, but to do God's will, God's way, with God's power. All right, can we move on to verse two? Are we good? <laughs> it's going quick. It seems like verse one always takes the longest for some reason. But, but let's look again at verse one and we'll keep moving through. So verse one again. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go? And he said, to Hebron, verse two. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Yes, you heard it right. David had two wives. He would have more wives. This, again, is very evident very quickly that David is not perfect, uh, that he is a fallen human being. Verse 3. We will talk about this more next week, by the way. So, Verse 3. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. If you notice, they did not live in the city of Hebron because it was David and his 600 men and their wives and their children. And so who knows, a thousand, two thousand people, they could not fit inside the city walls of Hebron. And so they lived in the towns around Hebron. Verse four, and the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Judah was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and it was the region that David was in there in the southern part of the kingdom. And the men, the elders there of Judah, knew that David was anointed to be the next king of Israel. Matter of fact, we'll see later that the, the men of the north knew that as well, but they did not care. But the men of the south said, okay, we are going to anoint you the king of Judah. David is around 30 years of age at this time, and they install him as king. Verse 4 continues. 
It says, when they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Okay, so if we look at the map again, down here we have Hebron. Uh, if you remember, up here is where King Saul died, and the men of Jabesh-Gilead uh, valiant men went over and heroically took the body of Saul and his sons off the wall and brought him back and gave them a proper burial. The other really important city here is Mahanim, Mahanaim, if I can say it correctly. Uh, and we'll get to this later. But right now, David, who's in Hebron, is writing to the people of Jabesh Gilead. And he's writing to them because what David is trying to do is he is trying to use uh, relationships and not military might in order to uh, bring his kingdom over all of Israel, both the northern and southern kingdom. He's using diplom diplomacy, you could say. As a good shepherd, he's reaching out and loving and caring for them. So he's affirming to them, yes, it is good that you honored Saul. I agree we should honor Saul as the first king of Israel. And, and Jabesh Gilead was a very strategic city. It was a strategic city for two main reasons. One, it was the northeastern part of the whole, the whole region of Israel. But the other reason is because Jabesh Gilead was the most pro-Saul city uh, throughout the entire kingdom. Saul was the one in his first act that rescued them from the Ammonites. And so they were very pro-Saul. They were strategically located. And so David is using language here saying, listen, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for you. I will do good to you because of this. Uh, I have been made the king of Judah, and this wording, he's actually seeking to make a covenant to become their king as well, okay? And so David is seeking to expand his kingdom just from Judah over all of Israel as the Lord had anointed him and told him would be the case. But there is a problem. There's a problem. Plans don't always go the way that we think that they will. Verse 8 says, but Abner, Abner the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth the son of Saul and brought him over to Mahanaim. That's the city we pointed out. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel, talking about the northern kingdom. So we have a couple characters here, and you know, it's funny, the first time I read through 2 Samuel, I did it this past summer, I actually created a spreadsheet, because I'm a spreadsheet guy, because I'm like, I get confused by all these characters. There's actually not that many characters that we have to remember, and so you'll see it up here on the screen, but also if you look in your bulletin at the very bottom, you'll see I have listed out there for you the different main characters in this chapter, the next chapter, and the chapter after. So this will be in your bulletin this week and the next two weeks. But first we have the northern kingdom, which is called uh, Israel, and, and the Ishbosheth is the king of Israel, and he is the son of Saul, okay? And, and what we find out is pretty much just a puppet for Abner. As a matter of fact, Abner rules the northern kingdom for about uh, four or five years before, or maybe three, somewhere like that, before he, he takes, he takes Ishbosheth and puts him in as king. So it's Saul's son, uh, who is king of the north, and a puppet for Abner. Abner is Israel's military commander for Saul and Ishbosheth. So he served under Saul, now he's serving under Ishbosheth, and really he's running the country. 
He's running the country, although Ishbosheth is kind of the face of the country. And then we have the southern kingdom, which is Judah. And David is the king of Judah. As we just read, he was just anointed as the king of Judah. And, and Joab is Judah's military commander, all right? Also David's nephew, his sister's son. Asahel and Abishai are Joab's brothers. Uh, these are also David's nephews, okay? So this is the main character list that you'll need to know for this chapter and for the next two Sundays. And so it's there in your bulletin. You can look back as we read uh, if you get confused by names like I do. So, so here we are, though, uh, and we have two kings being established over a now divided kingdom of Israel, breaking it into two smaller kingdoms. And you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and one of the kings is the God-appointed, anointed king over all of Israel. And the other is a counterfeit king wrestling for power and dividing the people in two. Under these two visible kings and these two visible kingdoms lies two invisible kings and two invisible kingdoms. And in these invisible kings and kingdoms, one is the real king and another is a counterfeit king, just like in person. Satan is known by many awful names, such as the wicked one, the devil, the deceiver. But did you know he's also known as the prince, the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the darkness of this world. He's even known as the God, the God of this world. Similarly, Jesus is called king. Pilate calls him king of the Jews. He, he even cries out to them. He says, shall I crucify your king? And, and the Jews say, we have no king but Caesar, which is treason against God. And so this battle for kingship is not limited to the time of David. It really has began in the Garden of Eden and continues through today. It is a battle against light and darkness, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And Satan has used many puppets throughout history to try to accomplish his purposes, to extend his rule, his reign, his glory, his power, and to destroy the kingdom of God. And so what we see here at the very beginning is we see that there are two kings of these two kingdoms. One, the true king, the good king, the anointed king, and then the counterfeit king, the evil king, the puppet king, who seeks to destroy the other kingdom, okay? So that's the first part. We have the two kings of the two kingdoms. Next, we have the battle of the two kingdoms kingdoms. Again, if you uh, turn to your Bible, verse 12. Verse 12 says, Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from, Ma from, from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Again, if you look at the map up here, you'll see is Mahanaim is right here. Gibeon is right here. It is in spitting distance of Judah. And, and it's not just that one or two people come. Really, the whole military of the northern uh, kingdom comes down to that place. And it is a, it's a move of aggression. It actually reminds me a lot of when, when uh, Russia moved their troops right outside of Ukraine. And, and so they're coming because they're coming to pick a fight. They're coming to try to take over Judah. All right. Verse 13 continues. It says, and Joab, uh, who again is David and Judah's military leader, the sons of Zariah and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down the one of the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. So this is actually pretty cool. We actually have a picture of the pool of Gibeon 
and uh, this is, archaeologists are pretty certain this is where they met, and, and I, I, I chose a picture with people so you can kind of see how big it is. Uh, it is 37 feet wide and 82 feet deep, and there was a stairwell to go down uh, to where the water level was so that people could go and draw water. And so you can imagine uh, Joab on one side of this pool and Abner on the other side of this pool, and their military's behind them, and they're having this conversation, okay? Let's go ahead and look at verse 14. It says, And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve for the servants of David. We saw something in this, similar to this in the story of David and Goliath, where they chose a champion to go against each other. Here they choose twelve men from each side to come together to come against one another, and whoever won, the other side would have to submit to them. Okay, that way they would minimize the amount of casualties in this battle. Now, the heartbreaking thing about this is they chose 12, uh, which, which is a reminder to us of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a reminder that these, that these people are not to be at war with one another, that they're actually a part of the same family. And even later, we'll see they call one another brother and that we're going against brothers. And so this is a, a civil war uh, amongst the nation of Israel that is breaking out. Verse 16 continues, says, And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. All 24 men died. Therefore, that place was called Helkala Hazarim, which means uh, the field of sharp blades, which is at Gibeon. Now, evidently, once this happened, all the soldiers started fighting. Verse 17. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel, the northern kingdom, were beaten before the servants of David, the southern kingdom. And the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, the military leader, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was, a swift, was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. I've never been accused of that. I love it. As swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right nor to the left from following Abner. Again, the military leader of Israel, the northern kingdom's army. Verse 20, then Abner looked behind him and said, is it you, Asahel? And he answered, it is I. Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil." But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? Evidently, these two military leaders, Joab and Abner, had a relationship. They knew one another. They probably both served together under King Saul. And so he said, listen, if I strike you down, how am I gonna face, how am I gonna face your brother? He also probably knew that, that Joab was a bad mumbo-jumbo, and he didn't want to face the wrath of him as well. Verse 23, but he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back. Uh, some commentators think he struck with the butt of the spear instead of the, the, you know, the blade of the spear because he didn't want to kill him. But, but he was so fast, and he ran into it so fast uh, that it came out the backside of him, and he died. It says, and he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Ahasel, where Asahel fell, had fallen and died stood still. 
But Joab and Abishai, Asahel's brothers, pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia on the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. And so Abner was in an advantageous position on top of a hill, and he had reinforcements behind him. Verse 26. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their, and this is the word, interesting, their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would have given would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning in other words a lot more people would have died simply out of vengeance verse 28 so Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more nor did they fight any more this was a very tragic day in the nation of Israel. So many of their battles were with other countries, other people groups that were attacking them, but now the war has turned within. This is a devastating day for the people of God. You know, on November 19th, 1863, Abraham Lincoln gave an address called the Gettysburg Address, and you probably remember some of it, but in it he says, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And then he said this, says, now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. The Civil War is the deadliest war in American history. About a half a million people died, probably more, because we don't have all the numbers. But what makes it even worse is that it was not a battle against an outside enemy. It was a battle within our own country. It was brothers fighting against brothers, literally. There's a quote that, that was credited to Lincoln, but it's more of a summary of a lot of what he has said. And, and Lincoln says this, he says, America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we lose our freedoms, it will be because we have destroyed ourselves from within. You've seen the bumper sticker. I saw it yesterday. United we stand, divided we fall. In other words, the, the, the worst wars, the most tragic wars, the, the most heart grieving wars are the civil wars in which countrymen is fighting against countrymen. And here we have the people of God fighting against the people of God. And so again, we have two kings and two kingdoms. One is an anointed king appointed by God, and the other is a counterfeit king. And the pursuit of power and dominion have clashed, and they battle against one another, and they lead the people of God into the civil war. Again, as we think about the kingdom of the light and the kingdom of darkness, we know that Satan is a counterfeit king who is on the prowl. He has waged war against Christ and his church, and the battle is all around us. If you don't believe that the battle is all around us, all you have to do is turn on the nightly news. You'll see how the schemes of Satan has worked its way into our families and into our schools, into our political system, into our homes, even into our marriages. The schemes of Satan are battling against us in our church, in our small groups, even in our own soul. Christians, we are not in a peacetime. 
Peacetime comes when Christ returns. Right now we are in a battle and Satan is seeking to deceive and disrupt and destroy. And so we must be on high alert against him. Because Satan is so good at what he does is he actually convinces us that he's not the enemy. Did you know that? Even though he is the primary enemy, he convinces us that the people around us are the enemy. I know this may come as a surprise to you, but my wife and I don't always see eye to eye. Sometimes we argue, sometimes we fight, sometimes we get angry with each other, sometimes we get frustrated with each other. I'm sure your marriage is never like that, but that happens in my marriage. And many times when that happens, I am tempted to believe that she is the enemy. But scripture tells us something differently. Ephesians 6, 10 says this. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I want you to hear that. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Your spouse, your parents, your kids, politicians, they are all flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Talking about Satan and his minions. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Christian, are you in a wartime mentality? Are you seeking the Lord in prayer in his word? Or are you fading and allowing him to convince you that everyone around you is your enemy? So here we have, just to recap, we have the kings of the two kingdoms, we have the battle of the two kingdoms. Finally, we have the trajectory of the two kingdoms. Verse 29 says, And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim, the capital city of the north. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. So a total of 20 men died from Judah. But the servants of David had struck down a Benjamin, 360 of Abner's men. And so if you're keeping score, the score was 20 to 360. Lowest score wins. This is a total blowout, worse than Wisconsin versus Ohio State. Okay. Verse 32. Amen, John Rogers. Amen. Verse 32. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. And then verse 1 of chapter 3, and that's where we'll end, but this is a transition verse, a summary verse of what's going on in these chapters. It says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. You know how many times David was anointed king of Israel? <laughs> Three times. He was anointed as a 15-year-old by Samuel the prophet. He was anointed as king of Judah earlier in this chapter. But then coming again in chapter 5, I believe it is, he will be anointed once again as king over all of Israel. What's so interesting when we get to that passage is that the people of the north knew that David was anointed by God to be the next king of Israel. They knew that. They knew it was going to happen. to some, If they believed in the Lord, they knew it was going to happen. But they were 
pressing against it. They were fighting against it. They were raging against it, even though, even though they knew David would be the king over all of the people of God. You know, it's so interesting because there's so much parallels, even what's going on in our own world and in our own, in the own spiritual realms right now. You know, Satan knows, Satan knows that Jesus is king. Satan knows that, that King Jesus is, gonna, is going to have complete dominion over all the people when he returns, and yet Satan continues to wage war against us. You know, the disciples knew. Disciples knew that Jesus was the king of Israel. Uh, they knew that Jesus was king of all God's people. They knew that the, that the king uh, of Israel would be opposed by the prince of darkness that they would wage war against the king of Israel. And, and at the cross, Satan and his puppet ruler, Pilate, put Jesus to death. It would be considered a significant roadblock or a dead end to the will of God and the plan of God. It seems like maybe God had made a mistake at the cross. But then Christ rose from the dead on the third day, defeating Satan, defeating sin, and defeating death. And yet again, the battle continues to rage on. You know, the Civil War ended April 9th, 1865, when Robert E. Lee surrendered the last major Confederate army to Ulysses S. Grant. But after the surrender, there were eight more battles, eight more attacks, eight more conflicts between the countrymen. You see, even though the war was over, even though the war was won, the battle still raged on Christian. There are battles all around us. But the war has been won by Christ through his death and his resurrection. And Satan knows the word. Satan knows the scriptures probably better than you do, probably better than I do. They have excellent theology. He knows in Revelation 2010, it says, and the devil and who had deceived them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan knows Jesus is the anointed king. Satan knows that Jesus is God's chosen king. Satan knows that he is defeated and one day he will be put away for all eternity. But he continues to battle against us day after day after day. We are called to fight as members of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of light against the darkness. Christian, take heart. While the battle rages on, the war has already been won at the resurrection of Christ. And it will be completed when Christ returns. Let me end with this. After I was called uh, to ministry and called to Wisconsin, and I received that phone call saying, we chose the other guy, and I said, you made a mistake, and I thought, God made a mistake. As I look back at that, I, I kind of laugh. And, and I don't mean this uh, to offend you, but, but you are a product of that, quote, mistake. <laughs> if the Lord had not made that, quote, mistake... I would never have gone to seminary. I would not have moved to Green Bay. I would have not have planted Jakeswell Church. We would not have planted Emmaus Road Church in Appleton, who planted Living Stone Church in Oshkosh, who is now planting a church in central Wisconsin. We would never have planted All Saints Church, who is now sending someone out to plant in Eau Claire. And we would not be in the process of planting a Hispanic church. If it were not for that, quote, mistake, you, many of you would not know each other. Jakeswell would not be your church home. And you would be scattered amongst the community. But church, I have, I have good news for you today. Even if things don't seem to be going according to your plan, we have a king that is alive, who is sovereign, 
and is working all things out for his good purposes because God does not make mistakes. God has a plan and God is working out his plan and you may not be able to see it on this side of heaven and that's okay, but we can trust the resume of God. We can trust the character of God. We can trust Christ our King who is King forever knowing that no matter what comes our way, he is in control of all things and he has won the war and it will be completed when he returns. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we are in a place where, where it's tough, it's difficult because there are battles for our soul, for our, for our holiness. There are battles for our family and for our marriages. There are battles for our schools, for our politics, for our country, for our community. There are battles all around us. And so Lord God, pray that we would not take a peacetime mentality. Even though you have won the war, even though we know that you'll bring it to completion when you return, God, may we battle. May we battle against the schemes of Satan that attacked us even in our own hearts and even in our own souls. And God, as we face those battles, may we look to the cross, remembering that you have paid for our sin in full and you triumphed over Satan and his minions on the cross through your resurrection. And may we rest in the victory that is ours today and forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.